Hey guys, welcome to episode number 25 of the Rugby Strength Coach podcast. This is Keir from Rugby Strength Coach. Before I introduce today's guest, just want to bring you guys up to speed with the new news for me. Um, no longer with Argentina. Unfortunately, there was some contract stuff that didn't come through in my favor. Uh, however, pleased to announce that I'm now head of strength and conditioning for Toshiba Rugby in the Japanese Top League. So I've just moved to Tokyo. I'm going to be here for the next two years and um, really, really excited to be a part of uh, a growing rugby culture, the sports taking off in this country. And uh, to be a part of that and help it to continue to grow is, is really, really exciting. That means a couple of things. One is that I'm going to be sharing a lot more information about how I'm training the guys. Uh, you can already check out some videos on Instagram that I've put up of uh, some little bits and pieces that we're doing, um, the rationale behind it as well. So if, you, if you're not already following on Instagram, make sure you're following. I'll, I'll be sticking out some stuff on the blog as well in a bit more detail when I think it's necessary. Um, but that kind of brings me to the second point, which is because, um, you know, new country, new job, new team, um, the, the online community is still growing. I've got my online clients as well. That means that time is a bit of a premium right now. So I'm not going to be able to write um, on the blog as often as I would like to. Um, so what I'm going to try and do is transition more to just uh, spoken pieces, just me in terms of a podcast uh, with regard to different topics whenever they, they hit me. And the reason for that is that it's just going to allow me to, to get the information out there a little bit more quickly um, whilst hopefully preserving the same amount of quality. It may be that sometimes you know I need videos or, or pictures to illustrate the stuff that I'm talking about in a podcast. So I'll do a kind of like a mini blog to to put along with that, you can click on that link and, and see the images or videos that I'm talking about whilst you're listening to the podcasts. So uh, yeah, that's that's going to be the direction that I'm taking things in the next few months. Uh, now to introduce today's guest. Today's guest is Al Smith, who um, he currently works as a sports consultant in a company named My Fastest Mile, his own venture. But prior to that, he had nearly a decade of experience as a clinical physiologist within the NHS in addition to many, many years as lead sports scientist with one of the most successful British Olympic teams of all time, namely Great Britain Rowing. He also worked as a member of the innovation team at UK Sport, who worked on projects and training interventions with all of the different Olympic sports and disciplines at all levels, uh, in addition to having some input on projects with another very successful British Olympic team, namely Great Britain Cycling. So he brings a ton of experience, knowledge, to the table but also he has the insight into some of the most successful olympic teams of all time specifically great britain rowing and great britain cycling and in this episode we're going to talk about those experiences his thoughts um some popular topics in research that he considers shouldn't be as popular as they are especially when it comes to elite athletes and a, a big topic that came up as well was the idea of mindset and the so-called soft skills and you know for somebody as uh, well-rooted in physiology as Al is. It's a topic that came up again and again and again, talking about organizations and mindsets and people. And I have to say, as much as you know, I take the piss out of uh, sports psychologists and say it's fluff, um, he's absolutely spot on. Um, you need those so-called soft skills in order to reach the elite levels of performance, I think. And uh, it's interesting to hear his thoughts about this um, on the podcast. And if the name Al Smith rings a bell, that's because I've written about him twice uh, on the Rugby Strength Coach blog in the last year. So if you'd like to see my notes from his presentations at the Boston Sports Medicine Performance Group seminars, make sure you search for his name and Rugby Strength Coach in Google and those posts will pop straight up. Remember, if you like this podcast and you want to get your hands on more information that you can use to develop yourself as a strength and conditioning coach, you should definitely check out the Rugby Strength Coach community. That is rugbystrengthcoach.com slash members. And what we do there is provide a monthly video webinar presentation from a coach working within elite or professional sport on a topic that is dear to their hearts that is going to allow you to become a more effective strength and conditioning coach. This is not the stuff that's covered in standard accreditations or exams. This is stuff that is going on in the real world at the elite level. Not only that, you've also got access to the forum where you can network with other people, get career advice, and also discuss strength and conditioning topics and share resources. The most recent resource I've put up there 
is a testing database spreadsheet with a dynamic pivot table and chart that you can use to process your own testing data for your athletes and present that in an easy, manageable format and also share that with your athletes and coaches uh, with just a few buttons. And that's hopefully going to save you a lot of uh, time, money and effort. That's just an example of what's on offer there. If you want to give it a try, uh, go to rugbystrengthcoach.com slash members. You can try it for one pound by entering the word trial at the checkout. And if you don't, that's fine too. Enjoy the podcast and listen to Al. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks very much for being on the podcast, Al. How's it going? Yeah, good. Good. So, um, criminally so, I don't think many people listening to this podcast will, will be aware of you or your work. And I know I definitely wasn't until I saw you speak in, in Boston last year. So would you like to introduce yourself to people and, and talk a little bit about your uh, the, the more prominent roles in your CV that you've done? Uh, yeah, so uh, Max, I'll start, start at the start. My name's Al Smith. Um, I, I've worked in the British sporting system for most but not all of my career. Um, I started life as a clinical scientist in the NHS, which I guess actually for me is, is relevant to my sporting experience because it gave me a real grounding in applying science in a, in a real world context and in a life and death context, but also working with some pretty high powered and demanding decision makers and clinical consultants who are not dissimilar to, to high performance coaches. So it was a really interesting grounding, but I guess I, I spent almost a decade in clinical science, but largely because uh, there weren't really opportunities to work in sport yet at that point. The um, the lottery in the UK came along and started funding Olympic sport when I was partway through that early journey in my professional career. Um, I started getting interested in, in the opportunities that were popping up. My background was, was athletics. Um, so I guess ultimately I was looking for an opportunity in athletics. I was a uh, running coach at the time. And a job came up, I was working in a hospital in uh, southwest London, and a job came up down the road, uh, the, uh, the GB rowing team, who were probably one of the first Olympic programs to use their, their funding to look to bring some sports science in-house. So they'd advertised for a fairly generic role as a sports scientist, and I... Um, threw my name in the hat mostly just to get some interview experience. I didn't really know anything about rowing. I guess my view of rowing was it was something that posh folk did. I uh, grew up in a, a working class community. There weren't a lot of rowing boats around. And um, I, I got an interview, went along, I guess, as I say, for the interview experience more than anything and, and ended up getting offered a job. And the interesting thing for me, I guess, at that point was that they'd been forward thinking enough to decide that they wanted someone from outside who wasn't caught up in their traditions. Um, but they were also very much um, aware of the fact that they were going to have to spend a lot of time and energy working on me, helping me learn about the sport and, and come to understand their challenges. So I spent uh, two Olympic cycles in that program. Uh, the Athens and Beijing cycles, working day in, day out with some of the finest athletes and finest coaches that I've ever come across. So they've gone on to greater and greater successes since then. But it was a, a huge um, learning ground for me. I just I was learning every day. I, I still look back on it now and learn new things that were, I guess, I wasn't conscious of at the time, but I was being infused with with all sorts of really interesting stuff that I, I still look back and learn on. So it was, a, it was a fascinating time, but I guess over the years I eventually got to the point where I had learned enough about how I fit into that world and what I brought to that world, and I, and I started looking to, to flex and grow and develop in, in ways that I couldn't anymore in that role. I was, I was at the point where I was going to be needing to take some responsibility away from, I guess, the chief coaches and the, the program leaders who, uh, I mean, it would have been a huge risk to, to start for them to start taking that path with me. So I, it was time for me to find an, a, another opportunity. And um, I guess through those rowing years, the other thing I'd done is, is started to work with a, 
really interesting team of guys at, at UK Sport, who, as well as being the, the funding agency for the Olympic programs, run some some core services, one of which was a research and innovation team. So I moved there for the London cycle, um, and I, I worked across probably at least a dozen, if not more, Olympic programs over that London cycle, just doing project-based innovation work with um, individual coaches and athletes, groups of coaches, teams, on everything from nutritional interventions for performance gain to helping people rethink their training methodology. It was it was a absolutely fascinating time, another huge learning experience. Was, then, was that on a commission basis where they would come to you or you would kind of develop stuff and then present it to people and they would either you know, opt in or opt out? It was a bit of a mixture, really. Uh, there, were, there were some things that, that we brought to the sports and, and put some stuff in the shop window and said, this is some, some things you might be interested in. But in, in large part, it was more about seeking out those coaches and athletes who were brave enough and willing enough to experiment a little bit, to, to be a bit vulnerable and recognize that there were areas that, that they realized they could do better on but didn't know how to. And through a, a pretty careful and deliberate process of, of, I guess, cleaning up those problems and spending some time with those people just exploring what was going on in their world, we'd see if we might have anything to bring to bear on it. And sometimes we did and sometimes we didn't. And sometimes what we brought stuck and sometimes it didn't. So it, I guess the, what I learned most through that period was, was about learning, was about that necessity of risk-taking and in developing performance in, in sport. And um, so when, when did that role finish with the innovation? Was that at the end of the, the London Olympics? Yeah, so that, at that time, that team, I'd, I'd been on a, the, most of the, the, the staff in the Olympic programs in the UK are, are contracted by funding cycle, so I'd been on a funding cycle contract, um, and that team was, was transitioning into a new space and actually moving from UK sport into the English Institute of Sport after London. So there, was a, there were a lot of things in the mix, and at the time an opportunity came along for me to move into a very different space that I hadn't really operated in before um, around talent and talent development. So I, I took on a role post-London in the English Institute of Sport as the head of talent science, which I, I always find quite an, an incongruous title given how little science there is around talent. There's so much we don't know about talent. Um, but it, it was an absolutely fascinating challenge. It was, again, a very cross-sport role trying to help sports to, I guess, professionalise their approach to talent development, which became known in, in that world as performance pathways. Um, and I, I spent a year in that role, but I, the, the longer I spent in that space, the more, uh, I guess, the more I... I was learning that the path I wanted to travel wasn't the path I was on. Um, I was getting more and more interested in things that I wanted to spend more time doing that I wasn't afforded the opportunity to spend time doing. So I took the either brave or foolish step to um, exit stage left and explore some new horizons. And that was uh, 18 months ago now. I started a, a little enterprise um, offering consultancy to mostly sports, also businesses around uh, talent development, learning, coaching. I guess most of the stuff I do now is coach development work in one way or another or organisational development work centred around helping to enable coaches and athletes to go on learning journeys. Is, is, um, so it's kind of, uh, would you say, giving coaches the tools that they need to develop themselves and to develop their own teams. Yeah, very much. Yeah, I thought. I mean, I, I guess a lot of it is helping coaches to to really strip it right back to to what's their philosophy around not just coaching, but their philosophy around learning. 
what did they what did they perceive learning to be and and how did they approach the learner in the learning environment which uh, for me um coaches in general probably don't spend enough time thinking about and certainly aren't um supported enough to develop are you of the opinion that coaches or organizations which tend to be really really good at that the rest almost takes care of itself I'd say in large part I mean, obviously you've you've got to get a lot of other things in place to be successful but I'd say if you've not got that you're going to struggle all the high performance environments high performance teams I worked with either in depth or just kind of through project interaction all had a really strong learning culture all really understood this common purpose around driving for betterment all the time and everything else flowed from that and you know we we kind of spoke via email before jumping on this call a little bit about um Jürgen Grobler with with GB Rowing do you think you know without putting it all at his feet but one of the reasons that GB Rowing has been so successful for the last is it like 20 years is is he the reason because of the culture that he engenders well, it, it's an interesting one. I think I mean Jurgen's an incredible individual, um, and I'll, I'll I'll explain, I guess, from my perspective, part of why that is. But the first thing I should say is he's he's one of a team of incredible people in that program. There's a there's a whole team of of highly skillful, experienced, capable coaches and and leaders working in that program around a really solid alignment to to common goal. That I think is the it's the place where I felt the strongest sense of teamship. And yes, absolutely, Jürgen's a, a huge part of, of instilling that, but no less guys like Paul Thompson, who leads the women's programme, and David Tanner, who leads the overall programme. So there, there's a real... It's an interesting one because it's from outside, it's a, it's a programme that's often... Um, misperceived, I would say. It's, it's often seen as quite a dictatorial controlling program and I guess if you take Jürgen in, in particular those that don't know him as well would either presume or describe Jürgen as the kind of stereotypical Eastern European coach who's quite directive and, and controlling but actually when you spend enough time operating around the man the, the truth couldn't be further from that. I, th- I'd, I would describe Jürgen as uh, a an incredibly um, capable man manager. He's a he's a very very personable guy, and his coaching is largely tacit. He's he's built an enormous, a vast experiential knowledge that he uses to to drive his decision making. And I I, I wonder actually how much of Jurgen's decision making he could actually articulate to you, even if he wanted. Too, because it's so deeply tacit and experiential, and I think that's that's one of the things that I think we've lost sight of in the modern world of sports performance and sports coaching because it's not easy to measure that stuff, and we're so hooked on measurement that we lose sight of it a lot. So is that like the the so called soft skills? Yeah, and it, yeah, and even just using that phrase is is already starting to belittle the value of those things. And Absolutely, for me, the, yeah. the, the, by far the, mo- the most important thing. So that. Jürgen's decision making is highly contextual, and um, I, I guess if I if I had to look back on those years I spent with them, there were very 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 few moments where I would say he made the wrong call, and the oh, the the main reason for that is he he never lost perspective. To, he made use of of whatever information he could he could gather. He's, he, he certainly used scientific and other input. He, he gathered data in all sorts of ways, but he never allowed an aspect of data to predominate over his decision making process. He was always very carefully considered in in balancing up decisions, and I, and I would say that that goes for that whole program. It's it, the, there's a lot of technical input to that program but the decision making is really highly skillful alongside it were there were there ever occasions where you know obviously there's there's all of these different factors going into performance like physical tactical technical psychological were there ever moments where 
decisions were made for the development of culture or, or psychological preparation that you thought were not necessarily optimal for physical or technical? Ooh. Um, that's a tough one. I, th- I, I guess the there's, you're constantly making compromises in in any sports squad context, but particularly in a in a context like rowing, where you've got a, a group of individuals all fighting for places on a team. You've got a team that's then made up of several different crews of varying sizes. Um, there's a lot of dynamics at play, and, and once you get to so the way a typical rowing season certainly for the, the GB guys would operate is is that they'd essentially function as individuals through most of the the preparation, so all through the winter into the spring, and then they'd start to refine selection through into being picked for crews for the summer. But through that selection process, what would also happen is each crew would would be selected a coach to work with. So. You, you've got this added dynamic where each crew is trying to build its own little culture within the team. And one of the real skills there is, is certainly for the, for the head coaches and, and the, the performance director is, is allowing that flex, is, is not being too controlling and prescriptive that everyone has to be on the same page all the time. Because it's absolutely critical that those crews, they've, they usually only have a, a few months to to blend and, and deliver something quite exceptional in that summer so it's really important that they find a common identity and have the flex to do that so there's always tension and I guess that's one of the one of my really key learns from that whole period of time was was the importance of learning how to live with tension because high performance is not a comfortable place no (laughs) so is it a case of kind of you know when when you do finish for the day, it, it gets left at the door, and then you can still go off and be teammates and be and be friends. Is is it that separation between the the work environment and and not work? I guess so. Yeah, and I'd I'd, I'd go back to um, to Jurgen on that one. One of one of the things that Jurgen held in very high regard was the importance of. Uh, socialising as a team as well as socialising outside of the sport, the, uh, particularly at that phase of the year where, as I say, there's lots of little subcultures emerging within the squad. That getting that blend right is a is a real challenge, and and I, I'd say he and the team of coaches that worked with him were um, artists of that challenge. That they, they they really had a good sense of how to find that balance yeah so i mean coming into that team before the the athens uh, olympic cycle that that rowing squad was already a really really successful um team and you've kind of come in and been tasked with right you need to make us better you know if that was me that would have made my head spin what were the kind of things that you tried to implement over those eight years to make a, a, an already very very good team even better do you know it, it it was really quite basic stuff. Um, there were, we, I mean, we we didn't we didn't revolutionise anything. We didn't drive any really wild innovations. But I, I guess the thing I'm most proud of over those years, and it was it was by dint of what had been afforded to us by the sport having the opportunity to employ someone like me and, and over those years several others I mean by the time I left the program there's this technical staff the sports science medicine staff around the coaching team was about 14 strong so it, it grew very rapidly over that time but the, the thing I'm most proud of through that period is that we managed to make a, a successful transition from seeing science as something that you do in the laboratory. So you send your squad off to some ivory tower to have the laboratory um, do stuff to them and send you a bunch of data to tell them what's right and wrong about your athletes and what you need to change, to really grounding our um, our scientific observations in the field and, and trying to generate meaningful, reliable, relevant information with a much higher resolution in the training environment day to day. So, and I, I, it was, that wasn't, again, it wasn't fancy stuff. It would, 
one of the peculiarities of, of rowing, of course, is it's an outdoor sport played out on water. So you can't really rely on boat speed to tell you where people are at each day. So we had to use all sorts of surrogates, like some simple physiological markers like heart rates and lactates and, and, and really dull things like that. But the, the, the key to those was actually making those observations frequently enough and in, in understanding the context of what was going on around them to really start making sense of what they were telling us about how athletes were traveling. So it, it was... It was pretty mundane stuff, but the, I, I'm really proud of the the shift we made to to really helping to inform day to day decision making and and just giving people a a more a more grounded evidence for whether they were traveling in the right direction. Yeah. So what? I mean, were there? Did you did you present information to the athletes as well, or is this more just to, to coaching staff? Yeah, it would be it would be both. I mean, and again, I guess a measure of that um, comment earlier about the dynamics of the culture, it would very much depend on which coach, which group of athletes, where we were in the season, how that information would flow. There'd be times when it was entirely appropriate and accepted that information would go directly to the athletes as a as a first port of call there would be times when it would be channeled through the coaches but it, it was very much in that sense a very transparent culture there wasn't a lot of um, gaming of information the information was there to be used and made sense of and, and the more people that had an eye on it the better chance we had to make sense of it okay and um, I, th- I remember you mentioning in in Boston that you know for example beetroot juice is one of these things that's becoming quite fashionable now about enhancing endurance but is it right that you found that for your guys it actually made them worse and i was wondering Uh, are there any other kind of are there any other things that you think that are fashionable that might not actually be that effective with elite level athletes i suspect the the vast majority of things that are fashionable are not useful for elite level athletes and i know that's a very sweeping statement but I'll, i'll happily back it up um and I guess beetroot juice is potentially an example of that. I mean, at the time where I presented that work in Boston, we'd we'd done a little bit of work. This was after my my rowing years, or shortly after my rowing years, we'd done a bit of work uh, with a really good group of guys over in Norway who worked with the cross country skiers to look in a in a very highly trained population whether a, what is essentially a, a pretty simple ergogenic intervention attempting to target metabolic efficiency can can have import in that population and despite some some really promising and and incredibly exciting scientific work in that space i mean it's it's a fascinating physiology that's unearthed by by that intervention around dietary nitrate but of course when you look at a highly trained athlete the very same mechanisms that that shifting uh, exogenous nitrate supplies trying to influence are the things that that training's trying to influence. And when you take someone who trains hours of the day, every day, every week, every year of their lives, it's no huge surprise that you might have reduced the margin for impact for for something that's just an acute intervention. And, and that's not always the case. And there is some since then. There's been there's been some evidence that for certain athletes in certain contexts, there might still be benefit for for an intervention intervention like beetroot juice but the, i guess the, the point i was making that day was the risks involved in the very rapid popularization of scientific findings these days so that the beetroot juice data had made it into the the popular science press so quickly that we were finding athletes rocking up at the rowing lake with a bottle of beetroot juice in the bag without any questions asked yeah and there's there's Ooh. there's definitely um, dangers to that. <laughs> we had a a guy in camp with us, and uh, he he had to go to the doctors once because they were worried that he had um, internal bleeding, and it turned out it's because he'd been drinking a lot of beetroot juice. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's another downside right there. But, Massive. Um, <laughs> you've you know on the flip side, in that same presentation, you mentioned. Uh, the intervention that you use with um, insulating suits with the the Bob Skeleton guys. Do you want to talk a little bit about that uh, particular innovation? 
Yeah, well, that, I mean, I should say for starters, I wasn't directly involved in that work. It was work the, the R&I team did uh, through the period I was working with them. Um, but in, in essence, it, and it, it, was, it was work that was triggered, amongst others, by a, a real mentor of mine, Christian Cook. And what Christian had, had postulated at the time was that for a whole host of, of sports that rely on explosive power, there was something really obvious in plain sight that people hadn't been paying attention to, and it was muscle temperature. So, and and there's been little snippets of work in and around that area. That, that, that uh, there's a couple of papers in the, in the kind of football warm up world. There's a, there were bits and pieces floating around, but no one had really tackled this issue. So essentially, what they did was to start in, I guess, one of the more obvious places, working with the Bob Skeleton athletes, who for some really interesting and, and I guess also obvious reasons, hurtle themselves down an ice slope in the thinnest, tightest skin suit you can possibly find so they can cut the air as fast as possible. But of course, at the very same time, that thin, tight skin suit's going to allow them to get cold pretty rapidly. So the when you start to look at the dynamics of that sport, you've got a call time at the start line. So you finish your warm-up, you've got to present yourself to the starter and from that point forward, you're stood around waiting to be as explosive as you can possibly be, and you get cold. And you're in a pretty cold environment to start with. So no matter how well you've warmed up, you're rapidly losing muscle temperature. And essentially what they showed was that by the by dint of the high-tech intervention of a tinfoil suit, um, you could hold on to the vast majority of that muscle temperature and, and hold on to the vast majority of the power that you would otherwise have lost. And I think in the, in the trials that they ran, the power failure was the power loss with the kind of control condition with, with no warming, no, no passive warming intervention. The, the power loss was almost 10% of peak power. And when you look at, certainly for that sport, the very, very brief period of time you've got to deliver speed into that sled, the, the implications are massive. But then, of course, you translate to that to so many other sports and so many other situations, and you've got a really interesting intervention that actually may even hold up in much more moderate climates. Yeah. How does, how does something like that get missed? Like, you know, you, you said kind of fresh eyes, but it's as you said, hiding in plain sight, do you think there's a reason that certain things get, get missed? Or on the, on the flip side, there's a reason that certain things get spotted? Is there, is there something we can put in place to address that? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. And actually, the, funnily enough, I, I just tweeted something earlier today about a, a couple of articles I'd read this morning. Um, one of them's on a, a really good site, a, a group of guys that we do a bit of work with called the Player Development Project in football. <clears throat> and the latest magazine's out, and there's a nice little article in there by a guy called Todd Bean talking about the the art of observation and the importance, uh, talking in the coaching context, the importance of a, a football coach paying attention to what's going on and not just watching what everyone else is watching, not just watching where the ball goes around the field, but actually watching what might be relevant to understanding what could have happened in that circumstance but didn't necessarily. And then I, I happened to to flip onto an article just by chance a moment later that was that was talking about the art of serendipity, and for me it was a beautiful serendipitous discovery because the two for me are absolutely related and and there's a really important reason why when it's not paying attention to them because the 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 point of the latter article is that it's in the New York Times so that if if people want to jump on my Twitter feed. Um, they can probably find the article. But the essentially the, the premise of it is that serendipity isn't a happen chance thing. It's a way of being and a way of doing. And what it relies upon is keeping your mind open. It relies upon not just being open to, but seeking out those serendipitous opportunities by exposing yourself to a variety of, of experiences, both inside and outside the world of your knowing so that you might come to see the world in new ways and come up with the with new ways of thinking about it and acting within it. And it's I guess for me it's such an important thing to consider right now because the the dominant narrative right now is is all about 
um, machine learning and, and metrics and KPIs and, and linear processes for development that are predicated on planning four years ahead, what you've got to do every step of the journey. And if we get so lost in that focus, that narrative that's, that's about uh, being controlled by process rather than, than being more creative in, in exploring opportunities to act in new ways, then we'll, we'll miss things in plain sight at every turn. Is there, is there a, a set kind of structure that you put in place to, to stumble upon or arrive at innovations? Or is it literally just, you know, is there a system in place where you're going to scour research and, and speak to people and, and try and identify areas within a program that you can improve? Or is it literally just a case of whilst you're doing your main job, for example, you're setting aside, you know, a few hours a week just to see what's out there? I, more, more the latter, but I guess the, what, I, what I spend a lot of my time doing now is trying to help organisations to shift the way they think about their challenge so those things are likely to occur more often. Um, what, usually when I'm working with a, an organisation or, or an individual, I'll, I'll start by trying to explore their philosophy of learning and really try and dig into the, all the assumptions and suppositions that are narrowing their thinking about what they could be learning and what they could be shaping of a learning environment for the people that, that they're working with. And that for me, that's always a starting point. Rather than saying, here's a process, here's a way of, of becoming serendipitous or more creative, it's here's a way of thinking before you reach a way of doing. And I think if we can help people to challenge the way they think about themselves and the challenges that they face before we get into trying to change the way they do what they do then we're going to we're going to be in much more fruitful terrain so there, there is a process but I guess for me the process is is more about that meta level of challenging the way you think about stuff and then whenever an opportunity arises you'll find yourself seeing it from a more oblique angles and and you'll also find yourself seeking out opportunities that you previously wouldn't have thought were that relevant or important to you yeah and i, I remember you saying the thing about innovation is is that it, it fails nine times out of ten and it's it's only that one time out of ten that you're going to get a hit and i suppose it's having the confidence in your your group and your culture and having the confidence of your manager that they expect you to fail nine times out of ten before you get to that kind of gold. For sure, and I, and that's that's not an easy thing to find. I guess that if it was easy to find, everyone would be high performing because the the route to high performance is is littered with failure, and the people who learn how to fail fast are the ones that get there quicker. But the the difficult part there, of course, is is knowing when to take risks and what magnitude of risk to take and that's that's again a hugely experiential thing if if you look at the the really highly experienced operators they don't stop taking risks they just manage them better and they choose them more carefully and it, so the, the the really interesting bit there is is how you hang on to that culture of risk taking and don't allow yourself to start being dominated by the ways that have worked for you already. I think there's a really interesting, taking a, a, a nice bit of lateral thinking myself, one of the, the things I've been doing a lot is, is delving into the world of educational innovation, which is mostly happening outside of the shores of the UK. Um, one of the places that, of course, is, is lauded for, for being at a, a national level an innovator of education is Finland. And what they've just done is profoundly challenging and exciting is off the back of being ranked the most innovative and effective educational system on the planet, they've decided to rip it up and start again. So they've, they've just launched a, a new wave of, of experimentation to try and innovate their education system. And, and what they've done is very clever, of course. What they've done is they've try to instigate a very large number of small-scale safe-to-fail experiments to figure out which ones move them forward and which ones don't. And that's a very brave thing to do, but it's what the, it's what the biggest innovators do. It's, it, 
I, I mean, I'd, I'd, without knowing the detail of it, from looking in from the outside, I'd say in large part that's what the All Blacks continue to do is, is to have that really powerful culture of, of risk-taking and experimentation towards betterment really tightly aligned to a common purpose of, of what direction we want to travel in. And if you're brave enough to keep going there, it, it keeps rewarding you. So, with, I mean, speaking of that rugby context and talking about the time to, to make decisions, would you say it's stuff like, you know, the, the end of season tour, um, some pre-season games and so on, that that's, that's going to be your opportunity to try and strike and, and test new things, but then obviously once you get into the competition phases and the important games, then that's that's when nothing needs to change. I'd, I'd, I'd probably challenge that. I'd, I'd say that if you if you reach a point where there's any point of your season where you've stopped trying to learn and innovate and take risk, then you, you've started failing at that point. The, you need to be... You need It's a mindset for for life it's not a, a switch it on now and switch it off later I th- and I'd, I'd say that's what I mean when 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 the ABs talk about heads up rugby and playing what's in front of you they're, they're doing exactly that they're learning every single game every single time and I, I guess it's the mentality that um, I, I, for some reason the, the, there's a a conversation just jumped into my head and it's a bit of a random one but hopefully it makes sense I was uh, and this is a measure of how interesting and, and varied my journey in the last 18 months has been. I was in a, a box at Lords for a, a cricket test match last year and I was having a chat with the ex-cricketer and, and uh, winning coach with, with and what he was describing was in essence, for me, this, this mindset. So he'd, he'd watched uh, an England collapse in that particular test at Lords, and they basically switched off and, and just let the game run out. And his point was, for him, that was a measure of their team culture because they hadn't found the game within the game. Because the result was gone, they'd, they'd just decided there was nothing left to learn. Whereas from his perspective, there was still lots to learn. They were in a high-pressure situation. The result was gone for sure, but there were all sorts of other things that they could have realigned their thinking to to learn more in that context. So the idea that, that you never stop learning even when the result's no longer in sight is in part bringing this mindset to bear. It's that notion that, that there's opportunity in every moment there's opportunity to learn no matter what the circumstances are and I think if for me the, the, the teams that really instill that philosophy are the ones that travel further it, it seems that you know I, I can speak from my own experience that the longer you do what you do the more you realise it's less about uh, numbers and the stuff that you can measure and it's more about the people in an environment and the attitude of the people in in the, in the environment. Would you say that's true of your own development and and successful teams that you've worked in? Yeah, very much. I guess I'll I'll, I'll throw a caveat in as well. But I, I, I I'll start by saying that that my journey, <clears throat> excuse me, my journey is very much gone from the data head, um, the guy who turns the numbers and and provides them for and and hopefully provides some insight around them, but certainly provides them for consideration to uh, I spend very little of my time now dealing with numbers I deal a lot more with with people and how they think and act and and interact with each other but I think probably the next vanguard for for the development of sports performance is is a more effective marriage of those two things and I, I guess for me the we're in a really interesting time at the moment because yeah, we're, we're in that era of big data and there's this everywhere you turn, athletes and coaches and will tell you that they're swimming in data. And the, for me, the challenge isn't to move away from the data, but it's to shift from a really unhealthy place where there's so much data around driving decision-making to a scenario where perhaps the same amount of data is around, but it's being handled in a very different way to subordinate to the the very skillful human 
decision-making process, the, the insight and, and expertise that I guess is too often dismissed as, as gut feel or intuition when actually it's, it's a huge body of, of contextual experiential knowledge that the data should bring, should lend itself to. And I don't, I don't see enough of that happening. It's certainly what, how I would describe uh, an operator like Jürgen. He absolutely relied on his contextual experience to put the data in context. But I see too many situations now where, for a whole host of reasons, and one of the most interesting ones for me is, is sometimes it driven from top-down organizational demand that people are being forced to comply with metrics in order to get their job done in ways that massively diminish their, their ability to express their human potential to make better decisions and, and move forward more effectively. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll probably be accused of having a chip on my shoulder and, and you know not being a member of the club and, and being on the outside, but as an outsider, that would be one of my perceptions of an organisation sometimes like EIS, where because the organization has to almost justify its existence and provide numbers to, to get funding to do what they do. Sometimes the numbers almost become somewhat of a crutch and they maybe don't give the best um, insight into how well a team is performing. And it happens a lot in, in rugby as well, where strength and conditioning coaches will point to numbers that don't necessarily tell how well the team is doing, but so long as the numbers go up, they can justify their existence. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. And it, I guess that the, the thing that disappoints me is that too often the basis for, for decision-making around effectiveness and, and relevance to, to, I guess, people having a place within a programme and, and processes having a place within a programme is, is some of those measures of efficacy are too far removed from the stuff that matters. And it's easy, of course, to to set a target for generating numbers and and decide whether you've met your target or not, and therefore be judged accordingly. It's it's much harder to have a a nuanced perspective on the deeper, more complex story that that you're trying to influence. And I I think that the thing I th I think we need to get to is is a much more complex view of things, and of, of course. That doesn't. That's not just me choosing a, a random word. The, I've spent a lot of my time now delving into the world of, of complexity science, and in the in the guise of learning and development, there's some really exciting stuff being done to bring complex thinking to bear on the challenges that we face, and it it leads you down a path where data and analysis doesn't become less important. It just it, it becomes positioned in the context of something much richer and more colourful, which is the the story of a human journey, which is why we all do sport in the first place, right? The the, the idea that, I mean, one of the, the reasons I departed the elite sports system in the UK is it becomes so heavily focused on this idea of, of no compromise that it's all about winning medals. And the, all the thing that matters is the number of medals that are won in a, a, an Olympic Games. And for me, I just couldn't see the sense in that because it ignores the value that those medals have and the purpose that they serve. The, for me, we have to be asking why those medals matter. What stories do they tell and why do they, why do they matter to the public? It's, it's public money that's funding all this stuff, right? And the, the reality is that not every medal tells the same story and there's some uncomfortable truths behind that but people don't want to go there they'd rather just stick with a simple measurable statistic that justifies their existence and keeps the gravy train coming rather than getting into that more nuanced debate about what actually matters here and why why we're we doing it just taking a step backwards and, and you, you mentioned complexity science my impression of that or me trying to understand that I often find myself just going down the rabbit hole and yep. like you said swimming in information or swimming in data can you just expand a little bit more on that and how how you would get that to fit uh 
for example, a team sport and how you would do that in, in limited resources because I think a lot of people in team sports struggle with the workload that they currently have and opening a can of worms like that may cause more problems than it solves. Yeah, it's, a, it's such an interesting one. I guess the starting point is anyone who's thinking about travelling that path into complexity pretty much has to accept that they are going to go down the rabbit hole there's no there's no way around it um and actually it, it takes some time to to go on that journey and really start figuring out the implications of it because actually what it's about is what i described before it's about shifting your thinking to to viewing the world a different way it, in itself it's the there's a beautiful simplicity and complexity once you take a a complex view of the world and start to understand the world from that perspective you you start to see things with with a different kind of clarity. So, I mean, the it's tough. It, the The reality is is that whether we call it simple or not, the world is complex. And what very very capable people do, what great athletes, great coaches, great leaders do, is distill that complexity into something that appears simple, but it remains complex. There's a great little doodle that does the rounds um, on Twitter which starts with a, a straight line that's described as simplicity and then it goes into this squiggly ball of mess that's described as complexity. But then out the other side of that ball of mess is a, a little kind of rhythmic line that's de described as elegant simplicity. And the, the point is that people who are willing to go on that journey and travel into uncertainty and, and embrace the uncertainty and, and develop experiential knowledge and insight through it will emerge with a level of elegant simplicity that informs what they do. And, and that's what all, all the great people do. They live with this stuff every day. Most of what I do to try and bring this stuff to bear on coaches in particular is just help bring that language to the job of explaining what they do already because they, they live with complexity, they, they do this stuff. So all I do initially with, with coaches to start helping them down this path is observe what they do and start to give them a language to describe it that isn't the language of reps and sets and progressive incremental loading and all the ology languages that are thrown at them in coach education courses and the like, but it, it's the language of learning and development and non-linearity and uncertainty and all the things that they live every day. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just having a, a million thoughts here. My thing, you know, again, going down the rabbit hole. But I think, you know, definitely for me in the last year, the the decision-making process that we tried to take leading into the World Cup was, you know, is this going to bring us closer to or further from winning a World Cup? And it didn't matter what area it was. That was yeah. just the attitude that we tried to take with everything that we that we looked at. And that and that so the, there's a great example of elegant simplicity. The, so and the parallel for me, if I go back to David Tanner, the PD of the rowing program, David's favourite line was, "Will it make the boat go faster?" And and that wasn't just a throwaway. It was a way of distilling all that complexity into. A really critical alignment around the purpose that we're all trying to serve and the critical thing that must go along with it which you guys had in in that fantastic run you had at the world cup was some highly experienced capable people who could distill through their experience what that actually meant and align themselves to that common purpose largely tacitly to come up with really effective decisions in the, the high-pressure dynamics of, of that context. And it's funny, you mentioned earlier with uh, team socialization, you know, those boys, whenever they had their day off, they, they chose to, to group themselves together and, and, and go out, you know, for lunch, all, all 40 of them together, which was quite interesting because you, you hear contrasting stories about different teams within that tournament and about the atmosphere within those teams and, and you know, when they get their day off, did they all shoot off to, to do other things or did they did they group together? It's quite interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Christian's done some really nice work in that space around um, uh, kind of club, professional club rugby and that kind of week-to-week -week context where you've got to keep getting up and delivering and, and they've done a lot of work around um, 
the immediate period after a game and how best to approach recovery and, and regeneration and therefore what to do with the weekend between before you hit that next fixture. And they, they did some really nice experimentation where they dabbled with different ways of, of post-match day recovery. Um, what they essentially found was that one of the most important ingredients in helping the guys ready for what was coming next and be in better shape so they'd, they'd do a, let's say, a Saturday game, they'd do a Sunday intervention and then review with a, a bunch of, of metrics and analysis on the Wednesday to see where the guys were at. And one of the most effective things <clears throat> about that Sunday intervention was the social dynamic, was bringing the group together. So they did, they'd, for example, they'd, they'd prescribe some light, kind of cardiovascular loaded work for recovery that the guys were to do on their own versus doing the exact same work but within a group context. And just having the group context made a huge difference to to recovery because, of course, when you look at it with that more holistic lens, these guys have just gone into battle together and whatever happened that day, what does an army do the day after a battle? It regroups and socialises and rebuilds those really powerful bonds that are absolutely critical to, to mission. And if it's another example of, of the dangers of distilling everything down into kind of reductionary analytics. The, the, the point of what you have to do here is, is get rid of all the metabolic waste products and regenerate your androgen status. And there's all these things that people will throw at you and say you've got to do this to be ready for your next training load, when actually what you need to do is, is re, rebuild the bond with that guy that, that you just went through the mill with. Yeah. Well, it's a, again not another coincidence. Our, our recovery was always um, in in the spin room. We let them put on whatever music they wanted, and we came back thirty minutes later. <laughs> yeah, very very um, scientific. <laughs> so, to just uh, change directions, you know, for the last ten minutes or so. This is, I have to say, very selfish for me. You mentioned um, talent ID and the irony that there's a lack of um, of, of science behind this. And it's quite funny, I listened to a podcast the other day and it was uh, a, a football coach and he said, parents ask him, what do I need to do to make my, my kid really, really good at football? And uh, his kind of taking the piss answer was, he said, tell the father to leave the home and then drop the kid off in the ghetto and I'll see you in 10 years. What were some of the common themes that you saw that, that d- does make for, for great athletic development or, or where do you think we need to look more at athletic development. It's an interesting one. I'll try, I'll try and keep my hands focused because there's a, there's a huge amount to explore. We could spend an hour at least talking about this. Um, I guess the, the absolute number one thing for me that we don't spend enough, anywhere near enough time focusing on is helping young people explore and understand themselves and decide what matters to them and and learn how to learn how to engage with their body, learn how to engage in a social dynamic, learn how to bring themselves to something rather than being brought to it. And and that that little subtle shift in language is, is critical. The number of kids, if we stick with that football context, the number of kids these days who with the absolute best will and intention, are placed in an adult-led performance environment from a very early age that far too often is predicated on the adults knowing what's best for them and the kid just needing to learn how to subordinate and comply. When actually what develops great footballers is the ability to be autonomous and, and creative and adaptable and, and be, a, be a great decision maker. And you, it's not that a, a football academy environment can't do that, and some of them are, are making some great strides towards that, but most of them are, are back in that realm that we talked about before of, of feeding a lot of hungry mouths of, of uh, technical experts and ologists who have to justify their existence by generating a ton of data on these young kids that, that forces the kid to comply with an expectation about how they're, how they're meant to behave on a football field. And I, I completely concur, although perhaps there, there's a, a more political way of putting it with yeah. the just comment that 
we need to uh, one of the other articles actually in the PDP magazine that I mentioned is um, a really good guy called Jimmy Vaughan uh, who's works with the PDP guys he's written an article this time around about getting kids back on the street and it, the what you what you learn as a kid from going out and creating the dynamics of the game for yourself is so much more valuable and developmental than what you can get from being placed in a a situation that far too often is is reduced to we've decided what's important for you so today lads what we're going to do is we're going to practice your dribbling so you're going to dribble unopposed from that cone to that cone to that cone I want you to make a turn off your left shoulder from here to here and there's absolutely no decision making left for the kid and of course if if you observe those environments you see some pretty disengaged children the the very very first thing that we need to do to inspire a nation of children not just to, to want to travel to excellence in sport but to engage in sport for life is to make it fun and engaging and enjoyable. And far too, af- too often now, that's not the case. Certainly where it's, it appears to be broken within the United States. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the, the states well enough. I know there's, I mean, clearly, the, I, I guess I would say it, it tends to be broken wherever there's money. Wherever there's enough money to create an adult demand to find and develop talent for personal gain, then you're going to get systems and processes that try and gain opportunities to find that talented kid. And of course, the the odds are hugely in the favour of those big corporate organisations like professional football clubs. The, there's a, a really nice piece of work that um, Ross Tucker has done to, to characterise one of the critical things about... Um, talent ID at that early age as, as something that's framed by what he describes as, as opportunity cost. So stealing that phrase from, from the kind of financial world. And the opportunity cost for the club to convince an eight-year-old to, to come and train in their academy is minimal because on the scheme of things, it doesn't cost them much. If that kid happens to be the one in two or three hundred that's going to make it, they've come up truck trumps without having to pay a 30 million dollar transfer fee but the opportunity cost for that child and their parents is massive because at that point in time they've made a decision to sacrifice all the potential other paths that that kid could have traveled and there's the other major problem with with um a lot of of pro sport talent id is that almost all the evidence is telling us that in spite of your um, glory stories of, of Tiger Woods, Andy Murray and the like, the vast majority of, of people who go on to sporting excellence do it by sampling lots of different sports when they're young, not by specialising very early. So what these pro sport academies are basically doing is hoovering up all the potentially talented sporting youth in a given area and narrowing their options to one sport for so long that once most of those kids have realized that they're not going to make it in that sport, it's probably too late to switch tack to another. Do you, do you think there's value then to that kind of, I, I guess it's the, the Soviet notion of you let the, the sport pick the athlete and not the other way around? Oh, for sure. And I, actually, I, I mean, I, I don't know what they do in, in Russia, but it's, it's probably one of the things that is better about the American system is the American school and college system, the, the opportunities to engage in sport that are afforded to young people are much broader. Um, and certainly the, <clears throat> the, where that's probably done best in my experience is, is in Scandinavia where rather than, and, and to an extent in Germany, where rather than having individual sports clubs, they have multi-sport club so if you join the community sport club it's not a football club it's a sport club that does football rugby cricket athletics swimming tennis you you join a multi-sport club and you're off you're afforded multi-sport opportunities yeah same in um same in argentina that was the the big difference that i saw between say england and and there is that there you know you go to a sports club and like you said it's 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 10 different sports that are available to you 
Yeah, for sure. And, and essentially what you're doing there is, is tapping into that creativity that we talked about earlier. That um, The irony, of course, is that when we were talking about how you instill within an organization the, the opportunity to seek out those serendipitous discoveries and be more creative, kids have got that inherently within them. It's the way we, we kind of educate it out of them along the way. So the, the more, which of course is why some, the, the idea of throwing, throwing the kid into the ghetto isn't actually that far removed from the, the most creative path, is that the situations where there's less, certainly less of an industrial education model that frames not just the school experience for those kids, but the, the sporting experience as well, because of course every coach that's providing opportunity for a, a young person in an industrial country has been educated in the industrial mold and thinks that's how they should function as a coach. So the, the more we get into situations where kids are provided much more dynamic, challenging, flexible environments to explore and, and discover, the more we're going to develop capable, creative, adaptable sports people, whatever, whatever path they choose to take. And, and do you think there is value in professional sports teams or organisations liaising with, with other sports and organisations to see if, for example, you, you, well, I mean, the example that springs to mind here is the relationship between USA Rugby Sevens and track and field or, or college football, that if athletes aren't necessarily destined to excel in one, they might be uh, pushed towards other opportunities in other sports do you think we we need to make more of an effort within professional sports to do that yeah for sure but but there's the rub what how is it in the interest of a, a commercial manager of a, a football club to encourage those kids who might become the next cash cow for that club to potentially take up a sport they enjoy more and, and end up deciding to go and do because they prefer it there's a it's a toughie, and it, there's there's no easy fix for it. But I think it at at its start, the the thing that's going to shift it more dramatically is is to educate parents and grassroots grassroots coaches about the dangers of of putting all those eggs in one basket, and getting that drive from from below to force the. Um, professional outfits to change their ways there are some good examples but it tends to be things like um the pro sports tapping into sports that are good feeders for them so you'll you'll get um the likes of a, a rugby academy inviting in a wrestling coach to do some wrestling sessions but what they tend to do of course is what i just described is in, invite the coach in rather than send the kids out because they can keep more control over what happens and they can they can mitigate the risk that that kid ends up deciding to be a wrestler rather than a rugby player. Yeah. Well, I mean, with the money involved in the UK, I, I, I can't see that being a risk in that example. Well, exactly. <laughs> the, it's, it's maybe not the, the best example, but there's plenty out there. Yeah. Well, I have to say, this is, uh, as usual, I've got a full page of notes in front of me with a, a lot of uh, questions that I need to ask myself. Um, where, can, where can people get a hold of you? Uh, the best thing to do is just to pop on the website is myfastestmile.com. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff on there. We regularly record video hangouts and publish blog posts. There's some inf intel on there if anyone actually wants to um, have a chat about potentially doing a bit of work. or yeah, that, that, That's the simplest way for people to get in touch. They can also follow the My Fastest Mile Twitter feed. That's at, at My Fastest Mile or my personal Twitter feed is a, a little convoluted. It's at underscore Al underscore Smith. You had a, a common name there. You had to put the underscore in. Yep. <laughs> it wasn't wasn't really a problem with uh, Keir Wenham flat on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, Al. I really appreciate this. No worries. It's been fun. Cheers, mate.